Happy First Friday. Mike here with Restoring the Faith with a very special guest, actually returning to the program for the second time. A great honor to have E. Michael Jones. On First Saturday, we recognize that Our Lady is the dispenser of all graces, and she's actually involved in the economy of grace. Today, we're going to be talking about a lesser economy, the economy of man. And I want to start with a reading from this book, um, Barren Metal, Dr. E. Michael Jones, and then we're going to get right to it. Jones writes, quote, Men of goodwill will need to preserve an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and the resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector. But they will have to oppose capitalism, which is to say state-sponsored usury because capitalism as usury is nothing more than the contractual appropriation of obvious surplus value. Dr. E. Thank you for having me. Okay, currency is uh, uh, the credit on future labor guaranteed by the sovereign. It took a long time to come to that. So as 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 you pointed out, the beginning was barter. Okay, we had people who uh, basically could produce a lot of something and virtually nothing of something else. So they had too much of something and not enough of something else. And they realized that there are other groups that were in exactly the same situation, except it was the opposite. So there was a beginning would, would be blind barter, where basically you would put what you had too much of in an open space and you leave it there. Mm-hmm. And then the other group comes and they put what they have too much of and they leave it there. And then you both withdraw and then you sit in the bushes and you wait till it looks, everything's clear. And then you go take what the other person put there and they come and take what you put there. And that's barter. Okay. And that's the beginning of economic exchange. Okay. Now at this point, you're confronted with a, a problem. Okay. So you've got a, a, a lot of uh, sheep and the other guy has a lot of, uh, uh, chickens or something like that, or a lot of flint. Okay, now how do you come up with the equivalent of flint, which is good for knives, mm-hmm. and a cow? Well, obviously one piece of flint is not worth a cow. But then again, how do you break down the cow? Uh, to get to get it, so all right, I'll give you a pound of hamburger for three pieces of flint. 
well, that's I have to slaughter the cow. You've got this this uh, in in uh, inequity here. And so what you what you need then is a medium of exchange. Yeah. And at this point, you well, well what's a medium of exchange? What's well, something that everyone considers valuable? Well, what's that? Well, it turns out it's gold or silver or let's say diamonds as well. And so let's take let's take uh, gold and diamonds. Okay, they're both valuable. Both everyone recognizes them because they're beautiful. But it's hard to cut a diamond. <laughs> in other words, if you got a big a big diamond, it's you're back in the same problem. It's like a cow. I can't give you half of a diamond. But it turns out that gold is a very malleable metal. Not only is it beautiful, it's malleable, and so you can basically put it into little little bits of it. And the little round bits of gold, let's just a little, a little round chunk of gold. Well, that's good because now we have a medium of exchange, but now we got another problem. And the problem is, uh, can I trust you? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you, you're you saying it's an ounce of gold. Well, mm. uh, uh, maybe it's not really, maybe it's, uh, it looks like gold, but maybe it's really just painted, painted piece of lead. Right. And it, maybe it's not an ounce. It's so easy at to this debase. Point we need some, we need some type of regulation, and this is where the government steps in. And it's Gyges, the man who created the first coin. And what is a coin? It is basically a guaranteed ounce of gold. How do you know it's guaranteed? Well, because the emperor or the king has his image on it. This is what money is. It's never stopped being that. Okay, but over a certain period of time, and this is pretty much the what I cover in this book, uh, the the uh, unsatisfactory nature of gold as a currency. It's not satisfactory because it's too damn valuable. Once you get, I, I had this experience. I was in Iran and this woman had won a prize and the prize was a gold coin. And she put that gold coin in my hand. And you know what? I didn't want to let go of that gold coin. I wanted to hold on to that gold coin because it was so beautiful. It had such a intrinsic value. Well, that's the problem with gold. It's not, it's a great store of value, but it's not a medium of exchange. So over to make a long story short, at a certain point, people realize, this is with John Law, the chapter on John Law, you realize all you need is the, the uh, image of the king because he's guaranteeing that now it's not an ounce of gold, it's a piece of paper, but it doesn't matter because uh, uh, gold is not the source of value. Labor is the source of value. And if he guarantees credit on future labor, that's money. And that's what it worked up to this day. Now, to get to Bitcoin, why is Bitcoin not money? Well, because there's no, the image of the king isn't on it. In other words, there's no government backing. Uh, so I'm in India and I'm, I want to go swimming. And it cost a uh, 100 rupees. No, this is Africa. I was in Africa. I want to go swimming. It cost 100, uh, whatever it is to go swimming. I pull out a hundred, uh, whatever it is, shilling note. I think it was Kenya. Put it down. She says, no, no, we don't take that. Uh, you have to get a credit card. Uh, buy it over there. I said, honey, honey, this is money. And because it's money, you have to take it. You have to take this, whether it's a crappy, whether no matter what your crappy economy has done to the money, you have to accept it because it's money, because it has the picture of the sovereign on it. And that's why Bitcoin isn't money. 
Um, okay, that's uh, so. Fundamentally, we have to understand what money is, the, what the quid est of it. And thank you for uh, for clarifying that, Doctor Jones. I want to get into private property right now, and you know, with respect to private property, um, you can look to. I mean, you can you can pull out the Catechism of the Council of Trent. You can flip to the paragraph uh, or the section on the seventh commandment. I actually want to. I want to pull out a different reference though, and get your take on it. And um, this is from the Catechism Explained by uh, Spirago, and on page three ninety five, it says, and with res- with respect to money, quote, since it is the natural right of every man to preserve his own life, he is justified in gaining for himself and keeping as his own those external goods which are indispensable to his existence. If every moment were occupied in providing for his own maintenance, he would be in the in the direst destitution. If sickness or misfortune befell him, the natural law prompts him to provide for such contingencies. Besides, were every moment engrossed with the business of self-maintenance, there would be no time to attend to his eternal interest. It goes on to say on the next page, just very quickly, uh, that the great inequality of wealth distribution is the result of sin, and it goes on to say God himself bestows property. So private property, Dr. Jones, is pretty significant um, in, in the revealed religion of the Catholic faith. It's in the seventh commandment. Um, there's, a, there's both a negative precept, which you can't steal. There's a positive precept implied, which you should be able to own things. Um, I think that, you know, the Catechism of Trent says that, that, that governments taking your property is theft. How do we reconcile that, though, with, with regulating a, a, an economic system that actually works for people? Yeah, uh, you have to get concrete about property, which means historically concrete, okay? And the problem with Catholicism is uh, ahistoric Thomism. I am a Thomist, but I am a historical Thomist, and you can't just have platonic concepts like property out there. You have to contextualize this historically. And in order to do that, you have to talk about John Locke. John Locke came up with an idea of property that became normative for the Anglo-speaking world. And he was a Whig, and it was based on Whig uh, exigencies, okay? He was being paid to represent Whig interests at the time of the Glorious Revolution. All of the Whigs had come into their property basically through the Reformation when they stole church property. That's how Whig oligarchs became rich. Okay, they were still holding on to their property. They did not want to return to a Catholic king because the Catholic king might take their property back. So they, they, that's what the Glorious Revolution was about. And it resulted in an exaggerated form of property, which is basically absolute the absolute right to property. No matter how you got it, if you own it, you are the absolute lord of that property, and you can do with it whatever you want. That is not the Catholic teaching. Okay, the Catholic teaching grew up uh, over a long period of time in Germany. What was there was no Germany, but the the Holy Roman Empire, where everyone started off as a serf, and then you gradually acquired the rights to some rights to the property that you took care of because labor is the source of all value, and you are creating that property by your, through your labor. So they had rights, and suddenly the Lord could not uh, uh, simply expel them from the property in the Holy Roman Empire, which is exactly what happened during the English Reformation. 
all of those Catholics uh, serfs who had their rights were simply expropriated and the, the, our, our, the oligarchs stole the property and they, they drove them off the land, created a, a rootless proletariat and put sheep on the land instead to make wool so that they could feed the, the Italian garment industry. Okay, that was the absolute right of pro beginning of the absolute right of property. And it led to the situation we are in today, which is basically uh, you have these private entities like Google, like Facebook, like YouTube, who have an absolute right to property. They, this is a utility. You have no right to uh, charge whatever you want simply because you own the railroad. We dealt with that uh, years ago, turn of the 20th century. Now these people, because of conservatism, this is the villain. The villain in this regard was conservatism that said government is bad. If private enterprise does it, it's okay. Well, we're now in a situation where these tech giants are stronger than government because of that exaggerated notion of property. Now, Locke led to Karl Marx because they abused it. They abused their right to property. They kicked the people off. And so now you have the exact opposite point of view expressed by Proudhon, who says property is theft. And so what had to happen was this course correction where the church stepped in and says, no, no, you're both wrong. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves. One was called communism and the other was called capitalism. And this is where Rerum Novarum came in to set the record straight about the rights of the worker. Uh, the man who was the predecessor of Rerum Novarum was Bishop von Kettler uh, in Germany, Bishop of Mainz, who basically saved the German economy because he persuaded Bismarck to give up the Kulturkampf, fighting against capitalists. The communists are the enemy, therefore treat the worker better. He treated the worker better. He instituted social security and health insurance. At that point, the, the German economy stopped hemorrhaging workers. I am German. I am uh, biracial. I'm Irish and German because uh, at that point in the middle of the 19th century, the German economy was exploiting the worker and they had a better deal in America. Once that happened, Germany became the biggest economy in the world. That led to World War uh, one with Winston Churchill, and that led to World War II, and that led to the destruction of the Germans as a people. They are an a completely colonized group of people. That's the, the, the long and short of the whole property thing. Uh, th there are a couple other principles I want to get into um, as we approach the uh, the end of the first part of the show, and um, and we have we we'll dive into the book. I have extensive readings from the book that I want to uh, elucidate, so you can get a sense of exactly of all the work that Dr. Jones has put into this work. The principles that we're going to cover next are usury, wages, the common good, and guilds. Usury is a big one, and it's going to take me a second to set it up. The first thing I want to do is give a reading from Dr. Jones's book, and it says uh, on page 59, quote, The church was quick to condemn usury, but slow to understand the role that wages play in the economy. The mendicant preachers who condemned usury and its effect on the urban proletariat failed to see that recourse to usury was symptomatic of low wages 
excessive taxation, and a debased currency. Again, page 59 from Dr. Jones's book, uh, Barren Metal. What I'm holding in my hands right now is The Sources of Catholic Dogma by Denzinger. And if you can see on the camera, there are at least two dozen references to usury in Denzinger, and um, and he's right. When 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 Doctor Jones, when you say that the church was quick to condemn usury, uh, it, it, starting as back, basically in the Middle Ages, moneylenders were forbidden. Um, they were they were separated from ecclesiastical burial. You can see that uh, in the Council. Uh, uh, Pope Eugenius III condemned it and cannot be considered under the name of usury, yet nevertheless the sellers incur sin. Uh, I won't go through all of these, but when you get to Urban III in 1145, he writes extensively about usury. Uh, he who offers his wares at a price far greater, if an extension of the already extended time be asked for making the payment, then if the price should be paid to him at once. That's how he defines usury. I'm going to ask you for your definition. Uh, Pope Celestine the Fourth, twelve forty one, and you keep moving forward in time. What uh, usury, usurious people are are viewed as heretics by Pope Clement the Fifth in thirteen o five. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, my question though is, we live in a in an economy based on usury. Basically, the entire world is based on usury. Um, I I went to school for finance, and the entire postgraduate work that I did was based on usury. Where's the church on this matter today, Dr. Jones? You used to be denied ecclesiastical burial. You were set aside with the suicides. And now um, Pope Francis is engaged in usury with having Goldman Sachs and the, the new, you know, the, the new economy that he's trying to build. Yeah, the turning point came in 1745 when Pope Benedict XIV issued Vix Pervainit. Now, I was at uh, breakfast with uh, John Finnis, probably the premier moral theologian in the world right now, Catholic moral theologian. And I said, is Vix Pervainit still the church's teaching? He said, yes, it is. Vix Pervainit said any interest on a loan is usury. Mm -hmm. Okay. But now this is where the problem comes in. But everything has become so damn complicated in terms of financial exchange that I don't have any competence to judge. Uh, I, the Pope don't have competence to judge these financial instruments. So you're going to have to deal with it in a private forum. So you're going to have to go to your confessor and say, well, I have a, a credit default swap here. Uh, is that usury or, uh, li listen, the, the, uh, inflation rate is 5% and I'm, uh, I've got a bank account where they're paying me 3%, uh, interest. Is that usury? Well, all of these things have to be taken into account, but the principle is still the same. Usury will never stop being a sin any more than adultery will stop being a sin. And what we're talking about here is the fundamental uh, ground zero of the economy, which is basically one man who has something to sell and one man who has money who wants to buy something. And in, in this economic exchange, there's always going to be the temptation for the stronger to take advantage of the weaker, especially when it comes to wages, especially when you have, you're selling wages. And when you, the strong takes advantage of the weak, that's sin, and that could be usury in the most global sense of the term. The specific sense is loans, credit cards, debt, all of that type of stuff, which are always wrong and always sinful uh, because of the nature of the agreement that you're entering into. 
Okay, so I I just want to I want to clarify what you, what I think I heard you just say because this is something that I've been battering around as well. You're saying that having paying interest on a credit card or or having a mortgage is uh, is usurious. It's a usurious transaction by any definition. But now wait a minute. Now not now not home mortgages now because what are you what are you paying three percent, which is probably less than the inflation rate. So that's that's in a sense not usurious. Mm-hmm. The the government basically abolished usury because bonds don't pay anything anymore. So you, that's eliminate now. But when you get to a credit card, that, that is usurious by any stretch any definition of the term. If you're paying twenty one percent interest, that's that's that used to be illegal. Yeah, but it got changed. Paul Volcker changed all that when he when the government uh, broke the econ when the Fed broke the economy uh, for the interests of the oligarchs in in 1980. Next principle that we want to get to is wages, and you you talk a lot about wages and and fair wages and living wages in the book Baron Metal. Um, I want to read uh, a quote from your book. Quote to a business. Labor is a cost that is subtracted from revenue to determine profits. But to the economy as a whole, the only way business have demand for their products is if people have sufficient income to express their demands in the marketplace. Um, I I think both of these points of view are definitely true, Dr. Jones. Um, What about – are you you sort of advocating for a minimum – you know – Minimum wage? Uh, do you uh, would you go so far as to say uh, universal basic income? I mean, because family wage. What's a family wage? I'm advocating a family wage, which is the Catholic position. So, if you're going to say should wages be higher? Yes, that's true. Wages are way too depressed right now. Uh, is there a, a, a minimum wage? Is that a well? That's one step, one way to do it, but I don't think it's an effective way to do it. I think the, the effective way, the Catholic teaching, is a family wage. Why do, what do I mean by a family wage? A man on his income alone can support a family so that the wife can stay home and take care of the children. It's precisely what did not happen in Florence. The oligarchs in Florence were constantly driving down wages. They were not allowing people to uh, uh, go out on their own or go to other cities to work with the knowledge they had about the garment industry. And so within two generations, uh, Florence became the museum. It went from being the the, uh, manufacturing powerhouse of Europe, the leading cultural edge of Europe uh, in every respect, to a mu- the museum that it is today. It's a museum, okay? Uh, because they did not pay a family wage because if you don't pay a family wage, people cannot have children. If they can't have children, guess what? Uh, next generation, you don't have any workers. And workers, labor is the source of all value. Mm-hmm. What they did is a textbook example. Why well, It's in my book. That's why it's there, okay? It's a textbook example of what happens when you choose usury over labor. That's exactly what the Medici did. They exploited the workers. They appropriated all surplus value that came to them through the garment industry. And they got into got into banking. They got into usury. And then guess what? Guess what happens? You lend money to princes and the prince has an army and you don't. So guess what? He's going to default on his loan. And that's exactly (laughs) what happened. Until you get your own army, that's what's going to happen. (laughs) Let me play devil's advocate with a couple couple, uh, questions about wages, though, Dr. Jones, if you'll permit me. 
The first is, um, what about inflation? You know, you always see, tend to see an inflationary effect whenever you uh, impose a minimum wage. The cost of going to the movies goes up because the, you know, the, the 19-year-old kid that's, that's making popcorn now makes 20 bucks an hour. And so to take my wife out for a movie is now a $100 event. No, that's libertarian propaganda. The cause of inflation is exceeding the, the have, when the money supply exceeds the size of the economy. That's the cause of inflation. That's the only cause of inflation. Because every single instance that you mentioned, if that guy creating popcorn and is getting paid $20 an hour, he's got a lot of money to spend back into the economy, which will make the econ entire economy rise. What we witnessed before is the exact opposite, where you take all these jobs, these manufacturing jobs, and you outsource them to China. So you can go to Walmart now and you can buy that really cheap T-shirt. This is great, honey. I just bought my hundredth cheap T-shirt. And then what happened here? The garment industry collapsed. You didn't notice, maybe, but uh, have you gone to uh, Forever 21, Gap, Banana Republic? Have you been to the mall lately? They all went down the drain. Why is that? The only garment manufacturer left is Old Navy, which is bottom of the line. Okay, bottom of the line. And what happened here is all of those T-shirts were being made in India. I know the lady who was selling them. She would come to India. She worked for a guy in India who had employed 50,000 tailors making cheap junk for slave wages. And she'd come to New York every year and they'd throw her money and say, we're going to order, uh, this is Banana Republic, send us blah, 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 blah. And then she shows up and wait a minute, there's nobody there. Where are the Banana Republic guys? Where are they? Well, Banana Republic just went bust. Well, why did it go bust? Well, because nobody can afford that anymore because no one's working over here because they're making all, all of this stuff. And so the, you collapse the economy because you outsource to a, a slave wage economy. And now we don't have them. All we can afford is Old Navy now. My second uh, devil's advocate question, Dr. Jones, is, um, all right, it is true that uh, it's a, it, one of the sins that cries out for justice to heaven is depriving someone of his just wages. That's the church clearly teaches that. But what about, and, and, I, and I certainly think that most Catholics would agree with you, the well-ordered home is where the father can earn enough money so that the wife can stay home and educate the children, and uh, that's just how it should be. Are all jobs the same, though? I mean, if going back to the guy who makes popcorn, is that the kind of job that should support a family, or aren't there different types of jobs that are sort of designed for, you know, part-time, or they're really not designed for, uh, for that? First of all, what happened? What did McDonald's do? It destroyed a whole group of people who were earning living by having restaurants and supporting families by restaurants. To give you some indication of what this was like here in South Bend, I bump into a guy in a bar, uh, a, a, a kind of degenerate. I can tell by talking to him, he's a degenerate. He's involved in all kinds of sexual stuff he shouldn't be involved in. And then he starts telling me about his father. His father worked at Bendix in South Bend. And he raised 10 children on the, on the job he had at Bendix. Well, what was your job at Bendix? You know what it was? He was the janitor at Bendix. 
Now, because it was Bendix, because it was big a manufacturing company, because of Quadragesimo Anno, because of the power that unions had during this golden age of, let's say, from Quadragesimo Anno up to the Folker uh, Fed, they actually, we actually did have a family wage. Now, I'm, I'm sure that guy, well, they didn't have luxurious circumstances, but in South Bend, Indiana, you could be a janitor at Bendix, raise, own your own home, and raise 10 children. That's what, that is not utopia. That was the reality in South Bend, Indiana. Now, top of that, that doesn't mean that the guy who worked as janitor was the top wage at Bendix. I'm sure there were people going all the way up because they had to be competitive to keep other people, to keep their workers from going to General Motors or something like that. And so therefore, there was a market. I'm not denying the market. You cannot have a price without a market. The next principle is the common good, and uh, we'll have two more principles, and then we will get uh, deeper into the book, which is an incredible uh, outline of the history of capitalism. But the common good, um, I want to I want to read again from Sparago's Catechism Explained. This is page three ninety six. Quote: It cannot be said that the distribution of wealth, as it is under existing circumstances, is in accordance with the will of God. It could not be his will that a small minority should enjoy a superfluity while an overwhelming majority of his children should live in poverty and destitution. This great inequality is the result of sin. God himself bestows property. Dr. Jones, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Pinnicky's book on capital, which basically says that the rate of growth that the rich can experience on their money is higher than the rate of growth that you and I can experience on our money, and therefore they will continue to get richer relative to us. The Catechism says that the distribution of wealth in this way is the result of sin. Can you make a distinction, though, between the common good that you talk about in your book and the collective good, you know, that the communists talk about? And how can how can we sort this out? Because it's really easy to, to deviate into error here. Yes, because communism is a reaction to capitalism. So they're obviously related. So wait a minute. Why don't you tell us the sin? <laughs> tell us the sin. Again, we have this vague kind of Thomism here. Uh, what's the sin? the sin is usury. The main vehicle for the concentration of wealth in our society is usury. This is strangling the economy. It's debt that is strangling the economy because everybody's in debt. And the first thing you have to pay off every month is your debt because otherwise they'll repossess your car or they'll kick you out of your house or whatever, whatever. That's the main problem. And the main problem, again, is that the church is not proclaiming the teaching on usury. Now, I went to Rome. I went to the Vatican. I had uh, lunch with a member of the Secretary of State there in the Vatican. And I said, there are three areas where the church is not proclaiming the gospel. Church, state, the Jews, and usury. And he said to me, well, forget. And, and I, said, I said, what about John Courtney Murray? He didn't know who John Courtney Murray was. Okay, forget about that. We're not going to talk. The Jews, this Pope's not going to do anything about the Jews. But usury, that's a good idea, so send me something, and I'll put it in the next encyclical, which is what he did. It's in Laudate Si. My, uh, my uh, pr uh, part of the book, come from Barren Metal, about debt and strangling the economy, mm -hmm. except that I said usury, and they changed to debt. But then the Pope, after going to Philadelphia, he went to New York, and he said uh, the U word in front of the United Nations. He said usury. Well, that's the first time a Pope has said that word since— 
rerum novarum, which is ends on the term rapacious usury. So that's good. I feel really optimistic. And then something happened. The Jesuits took over the papacy. And uh, from the book, uh, this is on page 245, and it, it popped out at me because you referenced Charlemagne, which I'm a big fan of Charlemagne. Quote, in 812, Charlemagne tried to codify this arrangement in his book Capitulare de Vilis, which became the model for arranging occupations on the large estates left over from Roman times. In each royal estate, provision was made for blacksmiths, gold and silver workers, shoemakers, turners, wagon makers and carpenters, emblazoners, soap makers, brewers, bakers, and lace makers, as well as for carrying out womanly tasks like spinning, sewing, knitting, washing, and also the weaving of linen and processing of wool into cloth and other materials and the finishing of all kinds of clothing articles. This is just meant to give folks a, uh, a sense of the different guilds which existed uh, in the Middle Ages. Talk to us, Dr. Jones, about guilds, uh, the, 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 the patrimony that labor unions today have received and how they squandered it, if you would. They squandered it by sin. Sin is the source of all problems. So the, uh, the, U, the guilds started exploiting the apprentices. Uh, they, they were, uh, uh, there were all kinds of complicated problems. It was basically, you know, they, it was a good system and they, and they exploited it for their own personal benefit instead of having some sense of the common good. But the main issue here was basically the guilds got sidetracked by uh, the factory. Because the whole point of a factory is you don't need skilled workers. This is this was the great genius of Henry Ford, who did not invent the automobile. He invented the assembly line, which is basically you can have you don't need a big uh, uh, training period. You just walk in off the street and we'll put you give you a wrench and you turn that that bolt, that nut and that's it. And then the, the, the thing moves on. So at this point, uh, you've lost control of the means of production, which the guilds had at, at, at a certain point. And so you've lost your leverage with the larger economy. And at this point, you've got to come up with a way of uh, enhancing your collective bargaining power when you're bargaining for wages. And that means unions. Now, the union was completely powerless because uh, as soon as you go on strike, you get fired and they hire scabs. And so this the big breakthrough was the sit down strike at the Dodge, Maine. Uh, in the 20th century in Detroit, where basically, okay, we're going on strike, but we're not leaving the factory, sorry. And you're not going to produce anything until you come to uh, your senses. And Henry Ford hated unions, okay? He was a man who understood the importance of the family wage, raised wages, was a genius in that regard, but he hated unions and uh, had to die before the Ford Motor Company could come to grips with unions, which his grandson did in 47 when he made a actually sit down with the U sat down with the UAW. Henry Henry Ford's way of dealing with Walter Ruther was to have his goons beat him up. And Walter Ruther got beaten up and you see pictures of him with bruises all over his face. His grandson was smarter largely because of Catholic influence, not just on him, but on the culture at mm. large. This is the this is the fruit of Quadragesimo Anno in particular, but also Rerum Novarum, which said basically you have to treat these workers with they have rights. You can't ignore their rights. They have to be able to have a, a family and 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 prosper in that regard. Dr. E. Michael Jones, so glad to have you with us. Those are the foundational Catholic principles that I wanted to cover before we can kind of deep dive into the book. I'm going to be reading some passages from the book Baron Metal on the back end of the following break. 
Uh, we're back with Dr. E. Michael Jones. Uh, we're talking about this book, Barren Metal, and uh, the, the subtitle is The History of Capitalism is the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. I think this is one of the most uh, important uh, Catholic economics and, and finance and banking books that is out there today. Um, so I want to kind of get into it. I'm going to give you a quick roadmap for the second part of the show. We're going to cover pagan economics, uh, the city of Florence, why it was so significant to the development of capitalism, the Whistle Bank and the subsequent Bank of England, the Andrew Jackson uh, era in the United States, the potato famine in Ireland, the Federal Reserve, and then finally to encyclicals like Rerum Novarum and Quadragesimo Anno. And then we'll, uh, we'll kind of end that section with uh, a discussion about the 2008 financial collapse and uh, Dr. Jones's thoughts going forward. And then on the back end of that, if there are intelligent questions in the live chat, I'll bring them in. Um, so start thinking about what you have uh, to ask uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Okay, first part, sir. Pagan economics. Is this just, is, is pagan economics just slavery? And couldn't you make an argument that we're essentially back in pagan economics now? No, it's not just slavery. It's slavery and usury. Usury drove the independent farmer class into slavery, and they ended up working up as serfs on the Latifundia. So it's usury combined with slavery, which is pretty much what we have today. Yes. Um, the city of Florence, you spent a good deal of time talking about Florence. You've already brought it up in this interview, especially with respect to manufacturing, which the, the, the primitive manufacturing was gar uh, the creation of garments. This is a pretty this is a pretty um, complex economic uh, creation here because you're getting wool from all parts of Europe. They're all coming in. You're manufacturing that. You, you can only get certain colors in certain parts of the continent. You get some colors in Germany. You get other colors and wherever else. Um, why did why is Florence so pivotal in the in the economic history of the West and and the world? Uh, because uh, it. It was able to uh, make use of the human invention uh, to basically create a system, a new economic system that was, to a large extent, independent of gold. Uh, now, they, they had gold coins. There's no question about it. But you had, because of the wool industry, you had to have contracts contacts with the low countries, and you also had to have contact with England. England was the main supplier of gold. So at, as of the Middle Ages, how do you do business? Well, you go to fairs, and you take a big bag of gold. Well, if you got a big bag of gold with you, guess what the problem is? You can rob, be robbed, and you'll lose everything. So what you have to do is you have to have knights. And when the knights get to the fair, well, they, they got to do something. So they have joust, and it's great. It's a great time. Uh, and we now have people who just want to recreate these things like, you know, uh, medieval jousting and so on and so forth. But it's not a good way of exchanging money. So basically, they understood, well, if I got a branch in Brugge and I got a branch in Florence, let's just say, OK, let's not transfer the gold. Let's just put it uh, in terms of bookkeeping. And this was led to the rise of double entry bookkeeping, which was a great step forward an economic exchange because you don't have to carry bags of gold around with you. That came from Venice, by the way, we should not eliminate. I focused on Florence. Venice had a, another crucial role to play, which comes into play in the book. When the Fuggers go down, they went to Venice. They didn't go to Florence because Florence had been a, spent at that point. 
but Venice was still the up and coming power, a sea power that Florence could not be. But that's so it led to these innovations, which led to uh, much better forms of economic exchange. Skipping over an immense amount of time and and uh, energy that you put into your book just for the for the sake of um, of uh, having a productive interview that sort of gives people a sense of the book. We, I want to go into the fractional reserve banking, which essentially was created as you say by the Whistle Bank, uh, off of which the Bank of England was modeled. On page five thirty two, you write quote. At the time of its inception, the Whistle Bank was a 100% reserve bank. But at some point, probably as early as 1656, it violated that principle and began lending out deposits, in effect using the same money twice. And as a result, slipping secretly into the practice of monetary issue. In doing this, the Whistle Bank created the first significant innovation in the history of money since the 8th century B.C. Um, one thing folks may not know, Dr. Jones, is that uh, the Bank of England has is privately owned. It's not really owned by, you know, the state of England. And uh, when we get into the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, I'm going to ask a similar line of questions. Um, these private stockholders are they the are they the richest people in the world today? Yes. Yes. The the the, the we, we, yes the, you're right. The Bank of England was a Whig creation. The Whigs were the only people who owned stock in the bank. And you set yourself up in a situation. Cobbett, uh, William Cobbett, the great uh, uh, chronicler of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Great. I, I just uh, an outstanding orator. Uh, but uh, was the man who said, basically, what you did with the Bank of England is you created a situation where you have two sets of Englishmen. You have taxpayers and tax eaters. And so anytime the government went into debt, the Whigs made out like bandits because they were the ones who were lending the money. That is precisely the kind of double standard that let, involved, involves us with the Fed, okay, where basically the creditors rule the in, entire world and everything is done for the benefit of the creditors. What about fractional reserve banking, which they, I guess, stumbled into? Is this something that you think is, is uh, contemptible or do you think that with appropriate level of reserves that uh, banks – you know, should be engaging in that lending practice. Is it, is it, you, the question is, is it usury? Is it sinful? And again, there were, we're we, we've got this long, complicated history of, well, calibrating the inflation rate with the, with the interest rate, you know, and uh, is it usurious or not? Uh, uh, the church had no influence on this. So basically what you had was uh, the spread of, uh, so fractional reserve, is that, Wrong? No, that's not wrong. That's simply a way of using money effectively. Is usury wrong? Yes. So you're constantly having to bring this discussion back to the, the, the moral basis of what we're talking about here. Otherwise, you're going to end up with this, this materialism, which is basically what Marxism is, where property is theft. No, property isn't theft. Property is necessary. You're always trying to reduce it to some type of material manifestation when we need to talk about the moral implications because economics is morality. Adam Smith got tired to be a professor of moral philosophy. That's how he got started. It's never going to change. All of the physicists, you know, it's, it became pseudo-physics. I talk about that in great detail in this thing, but it never stopped being morality. So we have to ask, constantly ask the right questions here. And, uh, and we certainly will. Um, in fact, I think 
let's just jump to the potato famine and we'll go back to Andrew Jackson because we're on this line of thinking, especially with the Brits and their rigid adherence to um, economics as a science and not as a moral sphere. You've detailed in your book how strictly uh, the British leaders adhered to this orthodoxy of free markets, laissez-faire capitalism, ignoring the suffering of the Irish. Um, in fact, I, if I can quickly get to a quote, I would love to uh, bring this out uh, because this is something this is something I think people are, are going to be interested in. And then I'll, I'll get to the question. Here it is. So you, you first start off the chapter on, on Irish potato famine with a discussion about Malth, Malthusian um, theories about population growth which the two don't seem to go along with each other, but then you, you sort of drive the point home uh, when, you, when you speak about uh, how the Brits uh, thought of it. And here, here we are, page 981. The main cause of the Great Famine was not this bacteria that was killing all the potatoes, but rather English Protestantism, especially if we take capitalism as the ultimate expression of the cultural form which the Reformation had taken by the middle of the 19th century. The main cause of poverty in Ireland in the years leading up to the famine was the confiscation of Catholic land by Protestant invaders. Over the centuries following the Reformation and, con and conquest by figures like Cromwell, the land had been stolen from the natives and distributed to English freebooters who used religious differences as an excuse to grind their Irish tenants and reduce them to a poverty so severe that it was unknown in any other part of Europe. Wherever the English ruled, markets took priority over human need during famine. Isn't that, isn't that what, we're, what we saw during the Irish potato famine? And we continue to see that, Dr. Jones, in the, uh, in the world today, that people trust markets and, 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 their, and the orthodoxy of laissez-faire capitalism over the, the needs of people. Yeah. The, the specific example in Ireland was basically you had people like Lord Palmerston, who they were in debt to the Jews. Every royal, every aristocratic family over the course of the 19th century, landed aristocracy, fell into debt with the Jews. Okay, so because you got to pay the Jew off, you're going to grind the the uh, the tenants. You got to grind them and grind them and grind them to the point where, okay, you ground them out of existence, and now nobody's going to work on your on your on your property anymore. Okay, that's 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 the situation. So it resulted in a situation where, okay, there there is food being produced in Ireland, but it's being exported. At the same time that the tenants on the place producing the food are starving to death. That's sinful. That, that cries to heaven for vengeance. And why did they do that? Because of this economic system that markets are supposed to be supreme and morality should not intrude into markets, creating market distortion. That to this day, we have a figure like Tom Woods who uh, justified gouging, price gouging, uh, after 9-11 when the refugees from Manhattan tried to get hotel rooms in Long Island and they're charging him $1,000 a night for a hotel room. And Tom Woods says, yeah, it's because the, market, the markets will take care of that. So what that means is those, so they'll build more hotel rooms. Well, this is ludicrous. And this is the type of ideology, blind, completely blind ideology that led to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people in Ireland. The market will take care of it. Well, wait a minute. 
they start this lady died before the market could kick in. Who's going to be held responsible for that? This is a complete and total abuse of the notion of property, that you have an absolute right to property if people are starving to death. You do not have that absolute right. And secondly, the idol known as the market, uh, which is terms like God as the replacement for divine providence, or more importantly, human charity. Yeah, one one would have to seriously wonder if the Irish were good Anglicans, whether or not the uh, Protestant uh, Brits would have allowed them to starve. But but to your point, that is true. They ground their own workers too. Okay, so let's let's be fair here. Okay, it was Cobbett who said this phony asked uh, mania for uh, ending slavery was basically uh, uh, simply a recognition that chattel slavery cost more than Irish uh, day laborers. Mm-hmm. And Cobbett said that uh, Wilberforce is interested in the in the blacks in the slave ship, but he's not interested in the the uh, worker at the bottom of the mines who could have been what could have been English or um, to your point about the price gouging in Manhattan post 9/11, uh, we just we just saw that as well in the state of Texas. They had a big ice storm, Dr. Jones, and then some. You know, because power, uh, you know, to heat your house is free floats and on, on a market rate. Some people were being hit with thousand dollar a day bills, and and there are some laissez faire free marketers who think that that is okay. Yeah, I'm sure Tom Woods was right up there justifying that. I apologize. Very good. Uh, Dr. Jones, I want to go. We skipped over, uh, I think, an important topic because one of the people that we tend to lionize in the United States as as, as a warrior for, you know, against um, against the central bank is Andrew Jackson. And I want to read not only a quote from your book, I want to read an, another quote from another book and um, and try to try to understand where where our minds need to be on this issue. So I think I'll start with uh, from the, the creature from Jekyll Island, an, an incredible seminal work on the history of the Federal Reserve. And on page three forty eight, here's how he describes Andrew Jackson's policy towards the second uh, U.S. bank. Quote. Jackson decided to place his entire political career on the line for this one issue and with perhaps the most passionate message ever delivered to Congress by any president before or since. He vetoed the measure. The president's biographer, Robert Ramini, says, quote, the, v- the veto message hit the nation like a tornado, for it was not only cited constitutional arguments against recharter, supposedly the only reason for resorting to veto, but political, social, economic, and nationalistic reasons as well. Jackson devoted most of his veto message to three general topics. First, the injustice that is inherent in granting government-sponsored monopoly to the bank. Second, the unconstitutionality of the bank, even if it were not unjust. Third, the danger of the country in having the bank heavily dominated by foreign investors. Now, uh, in this book, we we sort of get the idea that Andrew Jackson is a hero, somebody who who has an acute and and piercing understanding of the banking system. When I read when I read your treatment of Jackson in, in Barren Metal, here's how here's what you say, doctors. Quote. Andrew Jackson, who, as a result of the Allison affair, had sworn revenge on a financial system he never understood, but the immediate cause of Jackson's hostility was his suspicion that the Bank of the U.S., which he characterized as a vast electioneering engine, had used bank money, which is to say the money of the people of the United States, in an attempt to defeat him in the election of 1828. 
In addition to being vindictive, Andrew Jackson had an acute sense of what was politically possible and what was not. As a result, he entered office ill-disposed toward the bank, but amenable to suggestions. That amenability disappeared when Biddle responded disproportionately to Jackson's attack. And if you don't know who Biddle is, you could read the book. But Biddle retaliated by cutting off credit and calling on loans, creating financial panic. He unwittingly substantiated all the claims that Jackson had been making for years in public opinion, uh, slide, slided inexorably in Jackson's direction. By calling down Armageddon on the entire country, Biddle played right into Jackson's hands. All right, so two questions on this, Doctor. First, do you think that... Um, do you think it's possible that the author of The Creature of Jekyll Island uh, may have just uh, is just lionizing Jackson because he hates the central bank so much that he just wants to read a hero into it? Or do you think that he's just totally off base in, in, in claiming that Jackson really did understand the system that he was fighting? I think the first is the, is the option. When you were reading it, I couldn't help but think of Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is the Andrew Jackson of our age. Sure. You know what I mean? Obviously, there are t different changes, but a kind of vindictive guy, you know, a kind of guy who's out of his depth, a guy who mistakes uh, the part for the whole. All this type of stuff is true of uh, Andrew Jackson. So what happened is, OK, yeah, you broke the big bank. OK, that's good. That's a good idea. But then why do you don't understand the root of the problem? It's usury. It's not a big bank. It's all banks. And so you broke the big bank and then you led to the creation of all these wildcat banks all over the place. Every state, every city, you could just set up your own bank and you start doing fractional reserve banking. Well, what do you have? You got $5.50 in your back pocket and you're lending out thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, you're going to go bust. You're going to have a run on the bank. And that's precisely what happened across the country. And at that point, we uh, the only guy who could stop the run on the bank was J.P. Morgan, who had so many financial resources, he could backstop any bank that went down. J.P. Morgan died. And at that point, these people realized, no, we have to have somebody who's going to pr protect us from these wildcat banks, the run on the bank. And so that allowed. So Andrew Jackson paradoxically led to the creation of the Fed. Uh, you'd think that a guy who wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island could understand that, but we're always looking for heroes. It was like Donald Trump. Everybody was trying to make Donald Trump into something that he wasn't. And, uh, you know, it, it did and just to get more specific so folks can understand your point of view, what you write about Jackson and, and his war on the central bank was that he really fixated on paper currency uh, because he had personally been burned by paper currency in a bunch of land dealings that he had done. And uh, so so paradoxically, as, as you say, he he hated the, the Federal Reserve because of the paper currency, not because of the usury. Yeah, and because... Uh, first of all, what do you, we have gold bugs now? We, we let's go back to gold because you can't have inflation. Well, sec, first of all, you can't have inflation with gold. Read the chapter on Florence, how they created that. But secondly, you're always it's materialism. You're always trying to fixate on some material thing as the source of the problem. Just like Karl Marx, you know, it's property, and you're not getting to the heart of the matter, which is moral. Right. It's time, uh, since we're talking about Andrew Jackson and the Bank of the United States, I think most Americans and, and folks around the world understand that it was uh, Alexander Hamilton who created the first bank of the United States. Jackson fought the second bank of the United States. When you get to chapter 89 of your book on page 1221, 
We read about uh, the third bank of the United States, or in other words, called the Federal Reserve. And I just want to read a couple quotes uh, to tee off this discussion. You say, quote, when the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law, it was portrayed as a great victory for democratic reform over Republican special interests, a triumph for the popular will and a defeat of Wall Street. It was, unfortunately, neither a triumph of the popular will nor a defeat for Wall Street. It was, in fact, a triumph for Wall Street that was a defeat of the popular will. You go on to say at the bottom of the page, 1221, now whenever anything went wrong, the apologist for laissez-faire could blame the government, as Milton Friedman would go on to do in his analysis of the stock market crash of 1929. When the people, however, went to their elected representatives to complain about the Fed's monetary policies, they were told that the Fed was above and outside the political process. The creditor class had once again created a game in which every flip of the coin had the same result. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. Isn't that the truth? Yes, that's the truth. And to bring up the uh, 1929, 1929 never should have happened. The Fed was created to prevent that type of thing from happening. And it happened in spite of that. And yet it didn't do anything. There was no, no substantial reform as a result of the crash of 29. Nothing happened. You had Roosevelt coming to power and introducing a kind of socialism uh, uh, based on what he saw happening in the Soviet Union and all. It was just the spirit of the time. All of fascism all of uh, Nazism, all, everything that happened in the 1930s was a reaction to the 1929 crash and the hegemony of what they would call Anglo, the Anglo-banking, Anglo-American banking mm -hmm. system. Uh, and no, there was no substantial reform. The Fed continued to exist. It, as I said, it was heads I win, tails you lose. Everything that happened justified the Fed. It's like it's like wearing masks, okay? Well, wait a minute, COVID's going up in spot. Well, wear two masks. You know what I mean? It's always it's always some type of justification for the status quo. And isn't it a great irony, Dr. Jones, that the Federal Reserve in it, in it, in the original charter uh, in its mandate, they they had nothing to do with unemployment. Now they're focused on not only unemployment, but I I I just witnessed that the Archbishop of St. Louis is now partnering with a brand new office in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. It's called the, uh, the Office of Inclusive Capitalism and Equity, uh, Social Equity. I mean, equity is, is now the new hotness in, in American politics today. It's, it's, it's even more so. That the, and, and the guy who's leading that office openly advocates for reparations, slave reparations in the United States of America. So the, the Federal Reserve Bank is now taking on mandates that, um, that ironically, it, um, it has destroyed in, in, in the past, such as employment rates. Okay, let's let's change that a little bit based on barren metal. Okay, it's called inclusive capitalism. Capitalism is state-sponsored usury. So what we're talking about is inclusive state-sponsored usury. That's a contradiction in terms because usury by its very nature concentrates wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Where are these? Only a Jesuit could come up with something this stupid. Only a Jesuit. You're, you're seeing here the reign of America magazine over the Catholic Church. New York Jesuits like James Martin. 
This is what this is a catastrophe for the church. It makes no sense. Can't get can't disagree with you there. Um, all right, we're going to go to kind of the final part of your book. Your last chapter is about the 2008 collapse, um, and I, we're skipping over a ton. We're skipping over Paul Volcker. We're skipping over Milton Friedman. There's a lot that you've got to get to in the book. Um, one of the most interesting parts, though, uh, about about the 2008 collapse is actually in the in introduction of your book, you talk about um, Occupy Wall Street. And you point out that the that the FBI in Houston, Texas, literally were poised to use suppressor rifles against the leaders of the Occupy Wall Street movement. So this is this is state-sponsored assassination of people uh, who were opposing the sort of the bankster class, if you will. And uh, and yeah, they're definitely misguided, and certainly they were communistic. Um, but as you point out, communism is really just a reaction to capitalism gone awry. Uh, 2008 was a whopper, Dr. Jones. Yeah. Uh, and first of all, I'm not, I don't think they were communists. I think they were kids with student loan debt. That's what I saw when I went to Occupy Wall Street. Kids in their 20s standing there were saying, I have $50,000 in student loans and all I can get is an unpaid internship. Now worse, even worse than the FBI gunning down uh, these people on Occupy Wall Street, there was a Batman movie, a Batman movie made about Occupy Wall Street in which uh, the Occupy Wall Street people went up to the uh, to the oligarchs' places on the Upper uh, East Side and, and threw them all in the river. And so, therefore, Batman had to come in and beat the shit out of these uh, 20-year-olds with student loan debt. That shows you how serious the oligarchs uh, took the, this whole thing, Okay. So what, what was the cause here? It was uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the Glass-Steagall Act. And how do we know that? Because Time magazine put three Jewish geniuses on the cover. I think it was 1999. It was uh, Greenspan. It was Larry Summers, who was president of Harvard. And I think it was Robert Rubin. Uh, anyway, and this was going to be creative power of state-sponsored usury, we're all going to be rich. And they bought into that. And what it meant was more debt. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about going out and aggressively getting people to mortgage, put a, a second mortgage on their home or something like that, uh, and uh, signing a contract that they didn't understand, and then holding them to that contract and wrecking the economy very over and over again. Overextended debt led to the collapse of the economy. Nothing new here. I want to open it up uh, to the audience now, if that's okay, for uh, some live uh, questions. So if there are questions for Dr. E. Michael Jones that are relevant to the discussion we're having here today about his book, Baron Metal, The History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury, um, I'm happy to take your questions. And if there are moderators in the live chat, could you please send them my way? Um I've I've already written down a couple that I've seen as we've been going on, Doctor Jones, and you've you've sort of have answered one of them. Um, you brought up inclusive capitalism and Pope Francis meeting with you know the the heads of J.P. Morgan and and NBA players and all of that. I, I and and it's clear that we know what, what your thoughts are on that. I think the question though is what what can we practically do as as Catholics to 
try to correct the errors that Jimmy Martin, you know, and 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 his winsome, you know, protector bishop, Bishop Barron, are spreading in the Catholic Church. I think what we're doing right now is the only antidote to bad ideas. Good ideas will drive bad ideas out of the market. It's the reverse of Gresham's law. And in spite of all of the power that they have over the media, these ideas are spreading because they know that they're better ideas. Look, what is the proof I have that these are good ideas? The fact that my books were banned from Amazon. <laughs> I don't need any more, any better proof than that. If it, the only time you get flack is when you're over the target, the oligarchs understand what a threat this is to their hold on power, and they are getting more and more desperate. All you have to do is read the New York Times or the Washington Post and the hysterical nonsense that's coming out of what was considered papers of record, the absolute preposterous uh, uh, gender ideology nonsense, the Black Lives Matter racist nonsense that's coming out of these people, and you realize they are losing their hold on the collective mind. They are losing, they are losing their grip. Um. Higher education is something that is central to this discussion. I haven't brought it up in the interview yet. Um, you did a little bit with respect to at least the Occupy movement. Um, I asked you on our last interview, you know, if there are any safe Catholic colleges uh, for parents who are going to send their kids off. Um, it got a resounding no. The follow-up to that question, though, is what about just higher education in general? Uh, isn't it isn't it a good thing to just kind of, at this point, write it off, skip the bubble, avoid student debt, and and go out and be a tradesman? Is that what are your thoughts on that? If you can get an education, a serious education without debt, then go for it. Uh, take the gold and silver out of Egypt. I I. I told my oldest son that when I left him off at Harvard. Take the gold and silver out of Egypt. That's not that's a strategy that is not without danger. Okay? Because you're presuming that the way you raised your child is going to be stronger than all of the peer pressure that's going to be put on him uh, at an institution. And the higher the prestige of the institution, the more peer pressure is going to be put on you. So it's not a strategy without risk. But uh, you have to understand that some some of these things are, are, are worth doing. Sometimes it's good to get credentials if you don't get corrupted or bankrupted by the whole system. Mm -hmm. But in general, no, it's a corrupt system. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on government canceling debt or forgiving debt um, in in twenty twenty one? Every this was what the jubilee year is for. So it's root it's rooted in a, a reality that debt cannot go on forever. Uh, the, the debt has to be canceled. The, it, this has been institutionalized in our system by bankruptcy laws. We know that the, 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 all you have to do is calculate the exponential curve that is involved in compound interest, and you know you, you've got to find a way of canceling debt. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how are we going to do it? And And the fact is that student loan was exempted from any type of bankruptcy. Well, that's got to be reversed. OK, because that just penalizes little guys. You know, Donald Trump can go bankrupt three times and because he's too big to fail. But these poor guys that uh, have no leverage, they are going to be ground into dust. People writing and saying, I've been paying my student loan off for 10 years and I owe more now than when I started. That's got to stop.
Okay, that's because it will kill the economy. I'll make a prediction. The next crash is going to be the cause of it will be the student loan bubble. When do you think uh, that will be? Um, I'm not asking for a specific date, but I mean, is this going to be within our lifetimes or is it going to be down the road? It will be March 22nd, uh, 2027 at 410 in the afternoon. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did have a crystal ball. All I know are principles and I know the, the principle, the inexorable principle is that loans cannot be paid back. You have to find a way of getting out, uh, of breaking the hold of the usury class, the creditor class, who will go drive that car over the cliff mm -hmm. with their hands clenched on the steering wheel. That's what these people will do. What do you think about the U.S. currency? Do you think that uh, we're in for a, a, a total collapse? We're at, we're twenty five trillion in debt right now. People are wondering. You know, th there doesn't seem to be much gold backing it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Gold is irrelevant. It is completely irrelevant to any type of backing. It's been irrelevant for decades. We got off. Nixon got off the gold standard. It became an oil standard. There are all kinds of perturbations that go into that. Labor is the source of the economy. Labor is the source of all value, and you can expand the as we have increases in labor. You have to increase increases in productivity. You have to increase the money supply, and you have to put that money supply back into the hands of the people who increase the productivity. That is exactly what has not happened during this period of time. And you end up with people like uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, billions and billions of dollars, people who are so rich that uh, they can control the government. This has to stop. Mm -hmm. We have to uh, we have to end this concentration of wealth. We have to restore the manufacturing base of the economy. Donald Trump got that right. OK, we have to restore the manufacturing base of the economy. We have to restore the principle of the family wage. And this will then and we have to put uh, we have to end our dependence on usury. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great to say that. Who's going to put the bell on the cat? Because these are not economic decisions. These are now political decisions. Someone has to have the political will to step up right now and do what Poland did. First of all, number one, uh, you cannot be deplatformed from any uh, social media unless you break a law of the United States of America. The, these tech giants cannot make the laws because no one elected them to be our representatives. And then you have to start marching back, you know, rolling back to there, to usury and so on and so forth to get a to restoration of our economy. I'm getting several questions. I don't exactly know who Alexander Dugan is, but I'm, I'm being asked about your, your thoughts on him and any connections to him. Yes. Someone is now spreading this ridiculous, preposterous claim that I am a KGB agent because I was in a room with Alexander Dugan. Okay, this is completely preposterous, okay? And I am in the for unfortunate position of being unable to prove a negative. I cannot prove that I am not a KGB agent. So the burden of proof lies on these people, these character assassinations who are launching this in the first place. I was at a conference in Tehran uh, with, not in Tehran, in Mashhad with uh, Dugan. He gave a speech about multipolarity. I uh, 
offered an objection to that speech, saying we lived in some sense in a unipolar world, even if it's not the United States of America at the head of it. That was the extent of our, our discussion. These, this, this, this internet breeds character assassination, and this is one example of it. Um, in addition to uh, out, outlawing deplatforming of, of people who are not actually breaking the law, um, can you give one or two other pre more practical things that we can do to try to dig ourselves outside of this mess? P to pretend, for example, that either you're the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States or, or even better, you're a Catholic monarch. What would you do? Uh, first, right, right now, uh, you have to end the COVID lockdown because that is basically an economic attack on the lower uh, uh, and middle class of this country. It has to be recognized as such, being orchestrated by the same oligarchs who are pretending to be our friends in inclusive capitalism. So one of the things, first economic priority, end uh, the COVID lockdown, okay? Expose it for what it is. Uh, secondly, uh, take legal control over the internet. We have to do that just the way the trust busters took over uh, uh, the Standard Oil Trust and that type of thing. Uh, third step, we have to bring back uh, manufacturing. Uh, fourth step, we have to substitute wage increase for credit, credit cards. We have to rein in the credit card companies. No one should be allowed to charge 21% interest on anything, nothing. OK, these are the steps. These are all political steps that are, are predicated on a consciousness that has to arise before action is possible. We have to understand the problem. That's why I wrote uh, books like uh, Barren Metal. Dr. Jones, uh, what should I have asked you or what would you like to add to the conclusion of this interview that uh, that we didn't have a chance to get to? Uh, we've. <sighs> I thought this was a great interview. Uh, it was right to the right to the point, right to the fact. It, it it's based on things that I, that I've already already written. There's a text there that you can read. We can have an actual disagreement over the actual text, or we can have an agreement. Or it's a, so. Uh, I'm at a loss. I I, I don't uh, I don't know what we haven't covered that I that we should have covered. I should have this on the tip of my tongue, but I don't. It was such a good interview that I don't feel, I feel that we've just covered everything we need to cover. Well, that's a high compliment. The book is Barren Metal. Uh, you can find it at fidelitypress.com, a history of capital.org, fidelitypress.org. My apologies. Or culturewars.com. Forgive me. I've got it there on the screen as well. Barren Metal, a history of capitalism is a conflict between labor and usury. Can't recommend it enough. Buy one for yourself. Buy one for your priest. Let's take back our church, and um, God bless you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure as well.